We've been studying the types of the Old Testament. We began a few weeks ago by looking at Adam, the type of Jesus as the federal head of a race, one who acts for others as their representative. Then we studied the ark, that type of the one place to hide when the wrath of God is poured out. Next, we looked at the third type of Christ in the saga of Abraham and his son Isaac. And we looked last week at a fourth type, Joseph, the rejected kinsman and future savior. Tonight, as we move towards the Lord's table that is set before you, we will briefly study the Passover lamb. Christian expositors down through the years have seen the clear connections between Exodus 12 and the gospel. Deliverance from bondage by the blood of the lamb. A lamb without blemish. Salvation from judgment. These and many other details fit the typology of the death of Christ. And the fact that the Last Supper was itself a Passover meal in which Jesus explains the full meaning of it adds to the completing of this type. But one of my genuine pastoral concerns for you is this as we go through these types is that you will grow weary of hearing the story of salvation through the blood of a substitute. Let me say that again. That you will grow weary of hearing the story of salvation through the blood of a substitute, because that's what most types do. One of my missionary heroes is Adoniram Judson, the pioneer missionary to Burma in the early 1800s. By the way, Judson was an intense Calvinist and a passionate evangelist. And yes, those two do go together. But Judson's Judson's story is thrilling and amazing with plenty of danger and intrigue. For a while, he was imprisoned in a Burmese jail for two years. He persevered and saw the Bible translated into Burmese and a thriving church planted there. After 33 years on the mission field without a break, and after burying two wives and several children, Judson returned to the States to report and raise funds for orphanages before he would go and spend his last days again in Burma. Judson was scheduled to speak in a large church in Massachusetts on a Sunday night in 1845. The night arrived, Judson preached on the substitutionary death of Christ and how he is our only hope, and then he sat down. After the meeting, a a man came running up to Judson and said, the people are very disappointed. They wanted something else. Judson responded, I spoke to them of the most interesting, needful subject in the world. The man was more insistent. They wanted something new from a man who has been on the other side of the world. Judson firmly answered, then they can say that a man coming from the other side of the world had nothing better to tell them than the wondrous story of Jesus and his death for sinners. Tonight I have nothing better to tell you than the wondrous story of Jesus and his death as our Passover lamb for sinners. As we prepare to open this word and understand this type, let's seek the Lord's help now. Our God, we tremble with gratitude that you, the great sovereign creator and sustainer of all things, would favor us so by revealing your word to us. How we praise you for giving us your profitable word by which we can be rebuked and corrected and instructed in righteousness. And now, as you have promised by the aid of your Spirit, guide your people into all truth, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. 
hope you have your Bible open at Exodus 12 to the passage that Mark read in your hearing a moment ago. To understand Exodus 12, we must understand the the run-up to it. This began, the context began when the patriarch Joseph died in the last verse of the book of Genesis. And after the death of Joseph, Israel slid into bondage while down in Egypt. The Jews were afflicted more and more by their Egyptian taskmasters. Israel cried out to God for deliverance. They were heard and the Lord sent Moses to be their deliverer. And through Moses and Aaron as his mouthpiece, God sent nine plagues on Pharaoh in Egypt, all of which were firmly ignored by Pharaoh. The tenth plague. The final plague was to be the death of the firstborn, firstborn man, firstborn beast. The only way to avoid this plague of death was by the blood of the lamb. Did you hear that? Even saying that just in the setup should grab your attention. The only way to avoid the plague of death was by the blood of the lamb. Exodus 12 gives Israel these instructions for Passover. Look quickly at Exodus 12. Again, Mark read these just a moment ago. But notice the instructions for Passover. Several several observations. First, the smallest details are covered in these instructions, even down to the way the blood of the lamb is to be applied to doorposts. Look, for example, at verse 22 of Exodus 12. The people are told to take a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop is a small aromatic herb that grows on a bush. Dip it in the blood that's in the basin. Strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. And what we begin to learn is details matter in worship and especially the sacraments. And then the timing for Passover is precisely given. Look at the timing in verse 3 and verse 6. The Passover lamb is to be chosen on the 10th day of the month, according to verse 3, but not slain until the 14th day, according to verse 6. And so the reason why, you're thinking, why? Why would they have a lamb inside their house for four days? So that no hurried or last-minute preparations will take place. The head of the household has to count heads, assess needs, calmly deliberate, examine the animal for flaws for a few days, and consider that this lamb is going to be offered on their behalf. And let me tell you what always happens according to Jewish historians. Every house, the children of the house, grow deeply attached to this little woolly lamb for the next four days. And then we have the next detail. Look carefully at verse 6. This lamb is to be slain. That night, all over Egypt, death would either fall on guilty men or an innocent substitute. And then great care is given to describe what kind of lamb must be slain. Look at verse 5. We are told that it must be a year-old male without defect. And this insistence on the perfection of the substitute runs all through Passover, it runs through all the Levitical offerings, it runs through the entire sacrificial system. In fact, Malachi chapter 1 explains that anything that is blemished is unacceptable to the Lord and unworthy of his holiness and brings a curse on the one offering it. Only what is perfect is acceptable to God. Look carefully at those words in verse 5. The Lord is setting up a standard for his people. Only a perfect substitute is acceptable. 
There's no question, of course, that Jesus as our Passover lamb met all the requirements to fulfill this type. For the Father said of him, after careful examination, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. During the days leading up to the final Passover, our Lord's enemies questioned him fiercely, waiting for him to say anything they could attack. During all his trials, Jesus was repeatedly questioned. He passed every test. He had no flaws, no sin. He was shown to be the perfect spotless lamb of God. So that in his inner circle, Peter could write in 1 Peter 1, You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb who is without blemish and without spot. And then another detail about the Passover. Look carefully at verses 8 through 11. The Israelites were to eat the lamb slain. Now, every one of these details will meet us again in the New Testament. Surely this is why Jesus said in John chapter 6, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And what Jesus is saying to people who'd celebrated the Passover every year of their lives, unless you feed on Christ, the Passover lamb, you have no life. In just several minutes, we're going to call you to come to this table to feed on Christ, who is the lamb. Another truth that they were to learn in the celebration of Passover, look at verse 8. Along with the lamb, the people were to eat bitter herbs. These would always remind Israelites of the harshness of their bondage in Egypt and would serve as a corrective, by the way, to their revisionist historical tendencies. You remember what they will say in their 40 years in the wilderness where they'll say, we want to go back to Egypt. It was so great there. We had a great diet. Life was easy. It was sunny. It was a great life there. And so these bitter herbs every year will remind them there was nothing good about slavery in Egypt. And then notice in another detail, look at verse 11. The whole meal was to be eaten fast, belts on, sandals on, walking stick in hand, because this sacrament was about leaving bondage. So it was eaten hurriedly. Tonight when you take the Lord's table, this sacrament is commemorating your leaving the bondage and slavery of sin. Another thing you should notice, look at verse 2. The Lord redoes the whole Israelite calendar, and it now, from that day on, is reoriented around Passover. From that year on, the year would begin now with a memorial of redemption. This is exactly why we in the New Covenant begin our week every week with the Sabbath. For it's a reminder and a memorial of our redemption. By this, we're to see that God's redemptive work and his salvation are the regular priority in our existence. God is mandating that their calendar and their routine should depict his saving work. Now, notice what they're avoiding. Look carefully again at Exodus 12, because in a moment we're going to see God judging those not under the blood and sparing those under the blood. Verses 1 through 20 are a revelation. A real one, not an imagined voice in Moses' head. Look what we read in verse 1. <clears throat> now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying... And so everything you see in chapter 12 is a revelatory proclamation from the sovereign Lord. In fact, 
The Lord adds his signature to this revelation in verse 12 when he says, By the way, I am the Lord. Because of who he is, what he says is guaranteed and will surely come to pass. So listen to this revelation. In the midst of it, God prophetically reveals to Israel that he intends to do several things on Passover night. Look at them there in verses 12 and 13. He first states that he intends to pass through the land. He personally, the Lord, will be the one who is executing judgment. Death is his universal punishment against sin. And then he will pass over, in verse 13, he will pass over every single house with the blood of the lamb applied to the doors. It's from this action that the name Passover is derived. And then he will strike. Look at these active verbs in verse 12. He will strike all firstborn humans, all firstborn animals, and all the gods of Egypt. There will be a reign of terror such as has never existed since. And notice what Israel was to do to avoid this death. Look at verse 7. Every house in Israel was to put on every part of the entrance of the home. The doorpost, the lintel, was to smear blood on it. The blood of the lamb. And the purpose of this act is stated in verse 13. Look at it there carefully. It's stated, this blood smeared on the doorpost is an external sign that all those in the house are numbered among the people of Jehovah. All these homes have been set apart as the household of faith. This blood on the doorpost is a public confession of faith stating, this family believes God's word and acts upon it. Who is the sign for? This is fascinating. Who's the sign for? An omniscient God hardly needs a sign to know which people trusted in him and which ones did not. The sign was for the people's benefit. It was for them to look at and be strengthened by. It was educational in nature. So that's why we are told, look what the Lord says to them in verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you. The sign said to them, death has already done its work here. The innocent lamb has died in the place of the guilty. God's justice has been satisfied. This blood on the door says, sin is a capital crime, but it's been paid for by the blood of an innocent spotless lamb. As the father in the home would take that lamb that had become very comfortable being in the home. As the father would take the lamb in his arms and the wife and the children would gather around and the child would hold the basin The father would take the lamb, pull back his head, and slit his throat. Red blood would pour into the basin. The children would cry. They'd become attached after four days. Why, Dad? Why are you doing this? And the father would explain each year, every year, that the lamb was their substitute. And he must die, or else they would die. He would preach the gospel to them. Unless you have this lamb as your substitute, you will die. It was evangelism every year where he would proclaim the need for a a spotless substitute without defect and for that substitute to die. Now, I want you to notice the universality of condemnation. If you read Exodus 12 very clearly, Israelite and Egyptian both would die if they did nothing. But if any of them killed the lamb and displayed its blood on their doorpost, they would be saved. 
the Israelite household would not have been safe if they would have just said, we're Israelites, we're safe. Or if they would have just killed the lamb, but not smeared the blood. Notice also when the Lord passes in judgment, what he's not looking for. He's not looking for the unleavened bread on the table, or the barbecuing methodology, or the bitter herbs, or the basin, or the hyssop. He's looking for one thing, the blood of the Lamb. If some foolish Israelite would have said, Oh, the Lord is passing through tonight in judgment. I will set my gold and silver on the doorpost, or I will write out all my righteous acts on the doorpost, or I will smear the doorpost with my tears. All of those would have brought him nothing but condemnation. Only the blood of the lamb would do. The house itself may have been a a beautiful house, sturdy and well built. But if there is no blood of the lamb, judgment fell upon the house. On the other hand, the house may have been a miserable hovel, falling to pieces in disrepair. But if the blood of the lamb was upon its shabby door, those within were perfectly safe. Israel's learning that night, only one thing saves, the blood of the Lamb. After the sacrament of the Passover is celebrated, it's not complete until the catechizing takes place. Look at verses 25 through 27 in chapter 12. And what we see is sort of a reverse catechism. We're used to the parents asking the question and the children answering But I want you to notice how the form of catechizing in Israel was usually backwards. Look at verses 25 through 27. When you come into the land, it shall be when your children will say to you, What do you mean by this service? The parents shall say, It is the Passover of the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. Now, I would love to, if I had a a long evening or a, a lot more time, I would love to walk through sort of the history of catechizing in the Old Covenant. There are all kinds of times where you see parents and children engaged in this. But what I'll simply say is, this is not the only time when catechizing is mandated. Look at one other example. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. And notice, once again, the Israelite model for catechizing, it's backwards. It's the child asks the question, parent gives the answer. In Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 20, Israel is told, When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us in, to give us the lamb of which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us, if we are careful to observe all those commandments before their Lord our God as he commanded us. So the tradition developed in Judaism where a child would ask the father on Passover night, Father, why is this night different from all other nights? 
the children would recite then several questions and the father would recite several answers, teaching us, whether it's in the Old Covenant Sacrament of Passover or the New Covenant Sacrament of Christ our Passover, the Lord's Table. But sacraments and rituals demand explanation. Without explanation and understanding, the power of these rites is lost. How will I know what the sign is pointing to and teaching without explanation? And so what Israel is being taught here in the text is that explanation, questions and answers, must be made and answered at the time and every time the signs are performed. The parents are to seize the teachable moment. Failure to do so would be a failure to obey the Lord and bring chastening. How do we apply this word as we begin to move towards the table? First of all, the Lord gives his people formal, official reminders of his sovereign, gracious acts. Because we're forgetful. We too easily forget all that the Lord has done for us. This is what prompts David to write in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. This is why Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the truth, but I think it's right to stir you up by reminding you. This is why we have the Lord's table monthly. This is why Passover happened annually. This is why the fourth commandment begins the way it does. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. So don't chafe under repeated acts such as, Sermons, Lord's Days, Sacraments. God has ordained that these things be done over and over, just like Passover, which was to be repeated annually. God has ordained these things be done repeatedly for our good. Don't flatter yourself and say, got it right here. I don't need reminders. The sovereign, omniscient Lord thinks better. He knows that you do need reminders. Another application we should see is this text shows us the necessity of faith. Did the families of Israel really trust God's promises to them that he would deliver them? If so, they did all kinds of seemingly crazy things. They would keep a perfectly normal, healthy lamb in their house for over half a week before killing him. They would smear the lamb's blood all over their front door. Can't you hear the discussions that would happen between the husband and the wife? The husband says, we need to smear lamb all over the door. And the wife says, I just cleaned it. You're going to get it dirty. And then they would have to stay inside all one evening. They would have to eat dinner with their bags packed and their traveling clothes on. Why? Because they believe the promise. They're exercising faith. We're specifically told in Hebrews 11, by faith Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. Externally, the blood on the door made the distinction, but internally, faith made the difference. What I've been chomping at the bit and straining to get to all evening is this. This text shows us one of the principal types of the Old Testament. From texts like this one, clear text. We learn hermeneutics, the science and art of interpretation, since we're commanded to be workmen that don't need to be ashamed of the way we handle God's truth. For the last few weeks, we've been studying and broadening our understanding of types. All through the Old Testament, the Lord prepares us for the coming of Jesus by giving us analogies that are meant to whet our appetite for a Messiah, and they carefully portray some aspect of his person or work. So we'll see the temple. It's a type. It's a picture of 
the meeting place between God and man. That's Christ. Or we'll see people who are types. We've already looked at Adam, the federal head of a people who acts for them. Joseph, the rejected kinsman, yet future savior. We'll look at Joshua, the conquering warrior who defeats all the enemies of God's people. David, the type of the great king. And then there are festivals and holy days that are types, such as the Day of Atonement, when sin is transferred to the head of one and the other shooed away in the wilderness. Or actions, such as the lifting up of the bronze serpent. All of these, we're told in Scripture, are types that all point to Jesus. Obviously, some, perhaps many, have run amok with typology and they've seen types behind every bush. And so we have to be careful handlers of Scripture. But we cannot ignore clear and helpful pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. Indeed, according to Jesus himself in Luke 24, we should expect to find types there in the Old Testament because our Lord Jesus said every page of the Old Testament points to him. Types presuppose something. A plan in history that's unfolding. God is engineering history and embedding it with images that point forward. And so let me remind you some of the features and characteristics of a legitimate type. First of all, it must be a true picture of the person it represents. In our case tonight, we're on pretty safe ground in saying that the Passover, I I think that may be a type of Christ. Since as Mark read a moment ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, The Apostle Paul says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Paul is saying, for the slowest person in the room, in case you don't get it, Jesus fulfills the type. He's the anti-type. He's the fulfillment. A second way to know that something is a type, there has to be a, a divine appointing and designation. So, for example, in Exodus 25, when Moses is told to make the tabernacle and its utensils, he's told to do so after the pattern. And then a type always prefigures something future. So a type is a form of prophecy. And so think with me for just a moment, very quickly, about Christ as the, as the Passover lamb being a type of Christ. The Passover lamb we know is a perfect type of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why our Lord's cousin, according to the flesh, John the Baptist, could point to him when he sees him in John chapter 1 and call him by this name. Look, the Lamb of God. And by that he's saying, he's the one who fulfills the whole Passover lamb motif. And because all Jews knew that lambs were used in sacrifices such as the Passover, Jesus was the Lamb of God because his life was to be offered up as a sacrifice for our sins. He fits the type because like the lambs selected by the Israelites, Jesus was also in the prime of his life. Like the lamb selected by the Israelites, Jesus was without any blemish or defect or sin. And then the inextricable connection between Passover lambs and our Lord Jesus is made explicit in the last week of Jesus' life. When he's making his triumphal entry through one gate, at the same time the Passover lambs are being driven into the city of Jerusalem. Think, by the way, of how Israel is used to of dealing with Passover lambs in, in huge volume. The most conservative expositors have said on that night in Egypt, understanding that Israel was somewhere between 1 million and 3 million strong, that at the very tiniest, 200,000 lambs died. But it was probably more 
closer to 400,000 that night. And so one of the ways where the type doesn't hold up is what you would have in the, in the, on the Passover night. You would have hundreds of thousands of lambs slain. But when we come to the new covenant and the fulfillment of the type, only one lamb is slain. Because only one is perfect. Only one can take away sin. Then that week when Jesus was being crucified, as he was, families were killing the lamb in their homes at the exact same time. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, fathers were saying in their homes to their children, God has provided a lamb for us. Over at the temple, the high priest was killing a lamb as an atoning sacrifice for Israel's sin at the very same time that the blood of Jesus was smearing the posts of wood. The blood of the lamb cleanses from all sin. The Lord did not say to Moses, if the Lord sees the blood and, and, and you're not guilty of stealing or blasphemy or murder, then you'll be spared. No. No matter the sin, if you were under the blood of the Lamb, you were safe. This truth is taught to us didactically in 1 John 1.7. Listen to these words as you gird up your heart now to come to the table. The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses you from all sin. Let's pray together with thanksgiving. Our Father, how we are thankful for our spotless Lamb. We're thankful that he was slain and we are delivered. That he was slaughtered and we are saved. As we come to the Lord's table now, give us hearts overflowing with gladness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.